This feels really weird. I told the first service. Uh, this is going to take a little bit of getting used to for me. Um, and, and big shout out to Chad. I don't know where he just went, but thank you for handling the new members. I thought it would be a little bit weird to welcome new members when I'm newer than they are. Uh, but I do want to say we are, we are so glad that you're joining our family and uh, it is just such a, such a gift to get to be here at this moment and be here with you. A thank you, thank you, thank you as a church for the way you have welcomed my family and myself this past week. Um, we have felt your prayers and experienced your care in really tangible ways. And so I just want to say thank you. And I'm so thrilled this morning that we get to dig into the gospel together. Uh, because I can't think of a better place. We're in the beginning of a new era, and there's probably no better place we can go to the moment that started everything. The arrival of the one in whom our hope rests. So if you would stand with me. We're going to open up in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God in saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. We pray. Father, would you meet with us now? Would you take this text and everything that it contains, and Lord, through your spirit, would you unfold to our hearts and to our lives beautiful things? Lord, we need the one that is proclaimed here. We need the Christ who is everywhere announced on these pages, and we beg of you, where our hearts are hard, would you crack them open? 
where sin has calloused us, Lord, would you make our hearts tender and responsive again? Where we are blind, would you give us eyes to see? Give us Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can take your seats. You know, I was blessed to have been raised by parents who desperately wanted me and my little brother and my little sister uh, to know and love Jesus. They, they raised us in the church. They saturated us with the scriptures. Uh, and if you want to talk about Bible head knowledge, I mean, I, I had it. I knew all the stories. I could have told you about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I could have talked to you about Moses and the Exodus. I could have recounted the gory bits of Judges because that's pretty cool to a little boy. I, I could have told you any number of things about the Bible, and I would have said that I knew about Jesus too that I believed in him, that I professed faith in him. But as I look back at that time in my life, the Jesus that I professed to believe in, the Jesus of my imagination, the Jesus I thought I knew, he wasn't the Jesus that we see described in this passage this morning. The Jesus of my imagination He was someone who was not near but far, someone who wasn't warm but cold, someone who was not kind but cruel. He was someone who I thought was a whole lot like the other people around me who were always wanting more and for whom good never quite seemed to be good enough. This figure who was constantly demanding that I shape up to some standard that seemed to be ever-growing and always on the verge of walking away when I could not. He was a Jesus that I was not really sure loved me and I was quite sure didn't like me. And while I said I believed in him, I'm not sure that I liked or loved him either. But then in the summer after my freshman year of college, something strange happened. I found myself in a pit of my own making where I had done things where before I had thought God was, Jesus was always on the verge of walking away. I found myself in a place where I thought, I've done stuff now where I am pretty sure he's gone. And right there in that moment, in the place where I thought Jesus would be furthest away, that's where he showed up. And I suddenly found myself surrounded by all of these people who seemed to know a Jesus unlike the one that I had imagined and who were pointing me because they wanted me to know him too. I was opening up the Bible and suddenly there was this Jesus that I had always read about but never understood and suddenly I was realizing he was better than I had ever imagined. He wasn't cold, he was warm, he was not far, he was near, he was not cruel, he was kind. And instead of being someone who was always on the verge of walking away, he was one who before my very birth had been relentlessly, graciously pursuing me through every corridor of my life. A savior who was pursuing me even in that moment, not because he wanted to condemn me, because his heart was to save. And I experienced what John Andrew Bryant describes in his biography, his memoir about mental illness in the gospel. He says this, the devil is not afraid of the talented and the rich, of the beautiful or the witty or the capable. He is afraid that beggars might hear something. He is afraid of the hearing of the gospel. He is afraid we might hear who Christ is.
that summer, this beggar heard that gospel. And I got the smallest of glimpses, and I'll be honest, I think I still have the smallest of glimpses because Jesus is bigger and better than I can understand. But that little glimpse, it was enough to turn my life upside down. And this is why I love the gospel of Mark. Mark, in this whole gospel, he has just one aim. It is that beggars would hear the word of the gospel. That that thing that Satan most fears, that we would hear who Christ is and that we would know that he was for us, that is what he intends to do. He wants to proclaim Jesus. And you see it in the very first verse. He says, Mark 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And right away you know you are in no ordinary story. All through the 16 chapters of Mark, people are going to see Jesus, they're going to stare him in the face, and they're going to completely misunderstand who he is. But Mark, Mark from the very first chapter, he is lifting the veil and saying, I do not want my readers to make that mistake. See who it is who has come to you. It is God's anointed Savior, God in human flesh. Here's who Jesus is. First, he's the fulfillment. I mean, look at the first three verses. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark says the arrival of Jesus is the beginning of something. Not of a new story that comes out of nothing. Rather, it is the beginning of a new chapter in a story whose roots are very, very old. Now, I... If you're a Star Wars fan like me, uh, you know immediately when you see those paragraphs of text start to scroll across the screen, you know immediately what story you're in. Uh, you know exactly what's coming. You're going to have lightsaber duels and Jedi and Darth Vader figures and Ewoks and starships and all sorts of other things. And if you're like me, you get excited. If you're like my wife, that's your cue to get up and leave because you hate those things. If you were an ancient Jew, hearing those first three verses, you would know immediately what story you were in too. This is a story that begins all the way back in Genesis and continues on into Revelation. This story of a God who created this world with all that was in it and created it good. A God who created man in his image and intended to dwell with man here in the midst of the world and to spread his glory from one end of the earth to the other. A story in which man received all that, was given all that, was blessed with all that, and man decided that he knew a better way and plunged the entirety of God's creation into bondage to sin and death. And God... As the merciful, gracious God that he is, God, God doesn't just abandon his creation. God, at that very moment, he promises he's going to send someone to redeem. Someone born of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and restore everything that sin is broken. There is good news. He chooses a particular family, 
a particular nation through whom he's going to send this coming Messiah, this deliverer. It'll be someone who is born of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of David who is going to come and bring God's shalom and God's peace to the earth. But as you read through the rest of that story, something becomes very apparent very quickly. These chosen people who have been set apart as a vehicle of God's blessing, they need God's saving just as much as everybody else. Their hearts are just as hard. Their sin is just as deep. Their need is just as great. They need a second exodus. For God to come and save them, not just from some physical oppressor like Pharaoh, but for God to come and save them from their slavery to sin. And so God in the book of Isaiah, he begins to announce good news of a day when he is going to come and a messenger will prepare his way. And when God comes in his might and in his glory, he is going to gather his people into his arms in the way that a shepherd gathers his sheep. And in that moment, he is going to cleanse them of their sin and set the captives free. Mark, Mark says this is the beginning of that moment. This is the announcement of that gospel. Jesus is the one in whom all those promises over all those years mysteriously find their yes. And John John's the one who prepares the way. Everything in verses 4 to 8 confirms this. I mean, we meet John, and John looks like an insane person. He's wearing camel hair and a leather belt, and he's eating bugs, and he's got honey in his beard. And if you saw him in the mall, you would drag your kids away from him, most likely. But all those things that to us seem so strange, those aren't incidental details. Every one of those is Mark telling you who this man is. He's the messenger. He is the one preparing the way for the Lord. He's dressed in what looks like to us like an insane man, but that's the garb of an Old Testament prophet. He's out in the wilderness, which seems like an unlikely place to be, but that is the place the Scripture said this messenger would come from. And what is it that John is doing with every breath that he has? He's preparing the way of the Lord. And he's doing it in two ways. First, he's calling God's people to repentance. And second, he's pointing to the one who enables that repentance. First, the call to repentance. You know, Bob last week, he said that repentance was at the heart of both Jesus and John's message. And you see it right here. The message of John the Baptist is not the message of baptism. It's the message you see in verse 4. It is of repentance for the forgiveness of sins of which baptism is merely an external sign. But what a sign it is because it tells you just how radical the repentance he is calling for actually is. You know, if you dig into the commentaries on this, uh, all the scholars kind of fall over themselves because what they're seeing here, there's, there's no precedent in the Old Testament. There's, there's no precedent in the ritual washings that came before because all of those washings, those were washings that you administered to yourself. You would wash yourself. None of them are washings where someone else administers it to you. 
the only one that they can find, the only precedent that we have is of the washing that would be administered to a Gentile when they wanted to convert to the Jewish faith. Now just pause for a moment and think of what that might imply. There were a whole bunch of people at this exact moment in time in Israel who were just like John preparing the way of the Lord. But the way they're preparing the way is by demanding that God's people lean even further into their Jewish identity. They're calling God's people to even more strictly adhere to the Mosaic law. They're calling them to obey not just that law, but the traditions of the elders. And they are calling them to avoid anything that would make them impure, including Gentiles. John? John's saying something radically different, isn't he? John shows up, and John says, forgiveness is being freely and unconditionally offered to you by God. But you have no claim to it simply because you are a Jew. You have no claim to it just because you've done certain religious practices. You have no claim to it just because you belong to some specific religious community because you need the mercy of God just as much as the Gentiles do. Your need is just as great. Your sin is just as dire. And the purification that you need, it is not a purification that you yourself can bring. You need to be washed by another. Someone else has to make you clean. Come with nothing and receive from God everything. And it is the kind of repentance that is only possible if there is someone who is able to meet us in that place of need. And John, in verses 7 and 8, he says, I know just such a person. He says, after me, meaning it's not John, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John, John says God's coming. He is coming to do the very thing that he has promised to pour out his spirit on his people, to make all things new. And he adds this subtle little bomb that most of the people listening to him probably missed. God is coming with sandals on. He is coming as a man to men. He is coming near to save his people. And Mark, Mark says that one who comes with sandals on, it's Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Which means if you are in this room right now and you feel in your heart as though you have absolutely no claim on God's mercy, this Jesus, this Jesus is for you. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises to do for his people what they could never do for themselves. And he's not just the fulfillment, Jesus is the substitute. Mark leans into that God with sandals on motif here yet again because Jesus shows up in verse 9 and you would think, you would think there would be some kind of pomp and circumstance to this moment. 
There would be crowds or like a glowing halo or, or some kind of announcement to saying, here he is, he's finally here, pay attention. But there's nothing. Instead, in verse 9, we're told these two very strange things. One, Jesus comes from Nazareth, which to us probably means nothing. But that's a nothing in nowhere town. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, and the one time somebody responds to Jesus being from Nazareth in John 1, he says, does anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, I haven't been in Alabama very long, so I'm learning. But I'm sure that you have places, just like we did in Georgia and just like I did growing up in Texas, that you pass through and in your head you're thinking, I'm sure something good came from this place. I'm just not sure what. That's where Jesus is from. He doesn't come as an intellectual. He doesn't come as a glorious king. He comes looking like a hick. And that's odd. But the second thing is odder still. It says that he was baptized by John in the Jordan. If you were an attentive reader, that should make you stop and go, what? Why? Why is the one who is mightier than John? Why is the one so great that John says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave? Why is he submitting himself to John's hands and being washed in the waters of baptism? But even more important, why is one that we know is God, as Mark is everywhere telling you, and as we're about to see in the next verses, God himself is proclaiming, why is one that we know is God and as God is sinless, as Mark is also going to go out of his way to make sure that you know? Why is he sitting in the waters of baptism when those waters are meant to be a picture of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, of which this man has none? Why is Jesus there? He's there because that's the reason God came with sandals on to stand in the place of men so that as a man he could bear the penalty for our sin and as God he could actually atone for it. Why is Jesus in the water? Because he loves us. He's there because he would save us. And this is the place where my heart starts to tremble just a little bit. You know, we, we just moved here a little over a week ago. And if you've ever been through a move, uh, tensions tend to run high. You get stressed because there's all sorts of moving pieces and all sorts of things happening. And, and I have to be honest, there have been a few moments that I'm not that proud of. And my wife, very graciously and kindly, has at times pointed out those things. <laughs> And I wish I could say that my response was to immediately go, you know what, honey, you're totally right. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. But that's not what happened. I did that thing that so many of us do when we're confronted in our sin. I got defensive. Why? Because I am ashamed to be identified with my sins. I am ashamed to be seen even as what I am, which is a sinner in need of grace. Look at Jesus here is the one person in all the world who has absolutely no sin, 
And yet notice what he's not doing. He's not defensive. He's not turning to the crowds and waving his arms and going, hey, I'm going to go into this water, but just so you know, no sin here. This is for you guys because you're jacked up. He does none of that. He doesn't care what anyone seeing that moment thinks of him. He doesn't care how they view him because he knows who he is. And he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He is not ashamed to identify with our sins because he knows that is the only means by which we can be saved. And the very next verses press into it even farther. And there is so much in this text that I wish I could go into and I just can't. The heavens are torn open, the spirit descends on Jesus, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, all sorts of stuff is going on here. One, you think, oh, here's the glorious moment, but then you notice that nobody notices it happened. Only Jesus and possibly John, based on the other gospels, actually sees this moment take place and hears those words. It is a hidden glory yet again. You get the revelation of the Trinity, of the one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You have yet another proclamation of Christ as the fulfillment. He's the Spirit-anointed servant who has come to set the captives free, to, to preach good news to the poor, who doesn't break bruised reeds or quench smoking wicks. But here is the piece that I think is most important that tells us exactly why Jesus is in that water. Look at the name the Father gives him. Who is Jesus? He's the beloved son. That's an echo. There is another beloved son. All the way back in Genesis 22. And another father who was asked to give that son as a sacrifice to the Lord. And he brings that beloved son to the altar, and what does God do? He stops his hand. And he says, I will bring another sacrifice. Our Father in heaven is saying, this is that sacrifice. This is the truer and better beloved son. Not the son of an earthly father, but the son of a heavenly one. And do not miss this. It is the father's pleasure to see his son doing what he is doing. You know, we sometimes imagine that God has a heart that is hard towards us, that is cold. These verses right here say that we have a God whose very heart brims with delight at the sight of his son entering into our sin so that we might be saved. His delight is in our salvation. He gives his son as the substitute. But he's not just the substitute. He's the conqueror. And I'm going to have to go quick here because I know what time it is. It says in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You know, in the months that have led up to coming here with y'all, if anything has been pressed into my heart, it has been that spiritual warfare is real. There is someone who does not want this transition to go well. 
That we are wrestling not just against flesh and blood, we are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and there is someone who wants to steal and kill and to destroy, who would divide us and divide us against ourselves. And Mark, Mark wants you to see that that is precisely the person Jesus has come to fight. The reason that the first thing we see Jesus do in his ministry is that the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to do combat with Satan is because if we are in bondage to sin because of what that one has done in tempting Adam, then it is that figure who must be defeated if we are really to be set free. And what Mark is saying from the very beginning, not only is this the one that Jesus has come to fight, this is the one that Jesus has defeated. He comes to tempt Jesus, and it is a temptation that goes through the entirety of the gospel. You hear it in the voices of the demons when they identify Jesus as the Son of God, and Jesus has to tell them to be quiet because it is not yet time for him to be made known. You see it in the crowds when they're calling for Jesus to be a military Messiah and not a crucified one. You see it. In the opposition of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, you see it in the betrayal of Judas. You even hear it on the lips of a disciple Jesus loves named Peter. When he asks Jesus to avoid the one thing Jesus has come to do, and that's the cross. Behind every one of those things is the voice of this same figure. This same person who wants Jesus to be any kind of Christ other than the one who goes to the cross. Because it is in that cross that God's people are set free. This is the beauty of Jesus. Adam lasted a hot minute in the garden. He was barely tempted for a second and he fell. Jesus never He humbly submits himself to the will of the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. And in reliance on the Spirit, he goes to the cross. And that crucified Jesus is now the resurrected one. Which means, yes, we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we wrestle defeated spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The serpent's head has been crushed. He has no power here because this is our conqueror. And if all of these things are true, if Jesus is the fulfillment, if he is the substitute and he is the conqueror, that means he's also the good news. Look at what Jesus says. John's arrested. Jesus begins to proclaim the gospel. And he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, we need to hear this. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, but what he's proclaiming is himself, because he is the gospel. The time is fulfilled because he's the fulfillment. The kingdom is at hand because he's the king. He's the substitute, and he's the conqueror. The one who has come for us, and if he is here, there is only one response. It is to repent, as John called us to, and to believe in the one that Satan trembles that we would know. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'll close with this. A couple weeks ago, I stumbled on this interview 
with a woman named Ayan Hirsi Ali. She's a Somalian-born woman, grew up as a, a Muslim. But when she immigrated to the West, she abandoned the Muslim faith and became a part of what we commonly call the New Atheist. She was sharing stages with Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. She wrote books all about how the, the, the stupidity of believing in God and why we shouldn't and how he was harmful. But just a couple months ago, she shocked the world by writing an op-ed in a newspaper where she proclaimed her conversion to the Christian faith. And in this interview, they asked her why. And she said, here's why. A couple years ago, she says, I fell into this state of despair that nothing seemed to lift me out of. It was like this chasm just opened up in my heart and nothing that I could do could fill it. And I tried everything. She says, I, I, I tried alcohol. I drank enough to anesthetize a hospital and it didn't work. She says, I, I tried reading books on brain psychology, thinking that maybe I could just find some medical solution, something to, to numb this, to end this, but none of that worked. She, she thought, I, maybe I'll try therapy, and she began to go to a therapist and thought, if I can just process my story and walk through my issues, maybe there I can find some answer to this despair. And she said, one day as she is sitting there with that therapist, the therapist looked at her and said, I think I know what the problem is. You are spiritually bankrupt. Now, if you had said that to Ali just a few years before, she would have heard that, gotten up, and walked out. But she said her despair was so great, her sense of need so deep, she didn't leave, she listened. And she said, I don't know what to do with that, because the only God I know is a God I don't believe in and a God I hate, because he is cruel and he is vindictive. He treats people like trash, and he treats women as though they are something worse still. And her therapist said, why don't you make up a God that you can worship? Describe for me the kind of God that you could actually trust. And so she started talking, and about halfway through, she realized she was talking about Jesus. She said she's not quite sure what's happened just yet. She and her husband have started going to church and they still have a whole bunch of questions that they don't have answered. But she said, I was in a state of despair and now I'm not. Now, I have no idea where her story is going. I am very leery of celebrity conversions because you never know where those might go. But this is what gives me hope. A beggar has heard the good news of who Christ is. And that has made all the difference. May God so move in this place. May God so move in our hearts that we hear of that Christ and know he is for us. And may our hearts, may our hearts be filled with joy because that Jesus, he has come. He is the fulfillment, he is the conqueror, he is the substitute. He's the good news. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so thankful to be in your hands. And thankful, Lord, that because you sent the beloved Son, we now get to be beloved children. That, Lord, we can come to you without fear and without worry, knowing, Lord, that we are loved by you 
and that there is nothing, Lord, that separates us from you. The heavens have been torn open to us because of Jesus. And so we ask, would you be with us now as we leave this place? Grip our hearts, change our lives, transfix us with the sight of your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me to receive the benediction? May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Amen. Amen.